0: I think your preacher's a little excited tonight. What do you think? Somebody said he's wound up tighter than a banjo string. There you go. We're grateful to be here. Thank the Lord for this week. It's been wonderful, and I have enjoyed getting acquainted with your pastor. So great thrill. Uh, you know, I, used, I remember when I was a young younger man, and uh, I, I guess I could say much younger. I'd go to fellowship meetings, and I was a young preacher. And now every place I go, they refer to me as the older preacher. And, uh, you know, I guess there's some privileges with age. And uh, anyway, we're grateful to be here. And I'm I'm grateful for younger preachers uh, like your your pastor that's here that has a heart for the things of God and wants to take your church and encourage you and strengthen you and reach this community in the world for Christ. And certainly this church, I know you're behind your pastor. Uh, But uh, I know he's also praying for something very special to happen through this missions conference and uh, through the giving so that more can happen in this world in the realm of missions. And as we preach this morning, the need is so great. The harvest truly is plenteous and the labors are few. And part of the reason we struggle sometimes to get uh, labors to the field is because of the the need of resources to be able to support them. We think about missionaries like the Bennetts having to take two years to get to the mission field, uh, a place where God has called them. You know, and I realize there's a process in all of it, but you know, in some respects, it'd be so much better if we could get them there quicker, right? Uh, To get to the work. But we know God has a plan in all of that as well. But we're grateful to be a part of this conference, and on behalf of my wife and myself, we want to say thank you. I I think I mentioned to you uh, on Thursday night when we got started that uh, I have a real affinity to West Virginia because uh, both my grand sets of grandparents uh, came and uh, the Folger side, and my mom, she's a geyser, and they're all from northern West Virginia. A little town on the river called Sistersville, I don't know if you know where that's at or not, but it's uh, just a little bit up the river from uh, Parkersburg, and so we would spend a lot of summers. We'd come down uh, from Ohio, we we were living up in Cleveland, my dad married my mom, and brought her out of West Virginia up to Ohio, and uh, came up there, and then through the summers, we'd go back to visit family, and still remember, yeah, before the Interstate 77 was in place, we'd go what was called Route 21, and we'd get to a little place called Woodsfield, Ohio, and start on a place, a little route called Route 800. And I'll never forget that route because it was so crooked, and uh, you know, you just kind of go from side to side. And I had a younger sister who all, could never make that trip without getting sick, and so I can I can never forget that. So it's just kind of wedged in my mind. But we spent a lot of time, and we'd, we'd come down a little place called Fly, Ohio. How many folks know where Fly, Ohio is? Anybody? Okay, a couple here. Fly Ohio, and there was a, a, a ferry that went from Fly Ohio to Sistersville, West Virginia. And uh, we thought that was pretty cool to get on that ferry, take the car across, uh, and go to, to go to Grandma's house. My grandmother worked for the Coca-Cola bottling plant, and oftentimes we'd get there in the middle of the day and we'd catch Grandma at work. And uh, we'd help her finish up, and then she'd walk us down the street to her house. And so i got a lot of memories from West Virginia. A lot of family still lives down in that, that part of the world, and we're grateful uh, for the opportunity to be here and, uh, and where are we tonight? We're in Martinsburg, aren't we? That's right. And uh, grateful to be a part of Shannon Dome Baptist, uh, Bible Baptist Church this week in this fellowship uh, of, of missions. Let's uh, take our copy of God's Word. Let's go together to the book of 2 Timothy, please. 2 Timothy, chapter number 1. 2 Timothy, chapter 1. And we'll begin reading here in just a moment. And we'll begin in verse number 1, and we're going to read down to verse number 12 tonight. And our focus for the message will really be verse number 12, but we need to set the context if we may. And if you're able to stand, let's stand please and give reverence to God's word this evening. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God and the Father of Christ, Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers, with a pure conscience. That without ceasing, I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, Which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Verse 7 For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. Be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles." For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the record of the life of the Apostle Paul and the truth that you used him to pin. Lord, it's your word, not his word. You just used him as a vessel. And Lord, tonight, as we come to this final service of this missions conference, here at Shenandoah, we pray tonight for the divine unction of the Holy Spirit and for just a very special service tonight. Father, we need your power and we need your blessing. The folks need to hear from you tonight. I pray, Lord, they'd not be disappointed that they'd hear from heaven tonight through the Word of God and through the Spirit of God. We ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. My wife and I live in a home that we've lived in for about the last 22 years. I became the pastor of the Cleveland Baptist Church. I had served on the staff for 12 years uh, prior uh, to, uh, uh, actually 17 years prior to becoming the pastor. So in 1995, became the pastor of the church, and so we were living a little ways out from where the church was located, and I soon began to realize as I was pastoring this church that my life was changing very rapidly and that I needed to be a little closer to where our, our church was located, so we put our house in the market and we found a house, and so, even before we moved in this house, we, we, we live in a. Our church is located in a little burg called Brooklyn. So, Brooklyn butts up against the city of Cleveland on three sides. It's not in the city. So, if you look at the city of Cleveland, it sets on Lake Erie. And then around it, obviously, sets, starts these bands of suburbs that kind of wrap around the city. So, we're in the first inner tier. That's where our church is located, a little place called Brooklyn, Ohio. It's about 11,000 people live in this little city of Brooklyn that butts up against the city of Cleveland. So, we bought a house in this little burg. And before we ever moved in, everybody in the neighborhood knew that the pastor of the Baptist church just down the road was moving into this house. So it was like, I don't know how they found that out, but they knew that we were moving into the area. So when we moved into the area, of course, we tried to get acquainted with our neighbors. And immediately to the left of our home lived a couple, uh, Dot and Bill. And uh, Dottie uh, was still working, but Bill had worked for General Motors and he had a situation where evidently he had some health issues, and so he had to take a medical retirement, somewhat of an early retirement from his, from his working years. And so uh, I tried to get acquainted with Bill, but I, I found very soon that Bill was not really all that interested in spiritual things. I, I, I talked to Bill, and I, I'd invite him to church, and I'd talk to him about his soul, and, and here's what Bill's response was. Preacher, he, he called me preacher. Preacher, I don't really have time for that. I'm not really that interested so, um, when I thought about Bill's life, here's what I saw. I saw that Bill was a, can I call him a junk collector? Uh, Bill's life it revolved around the fact that he likes uh, to have a lot of, I just call it junk stuff. So, here's what he would do our trash would run on Tuesday morning. On Monday night, he'd get in his little pickup truck and he'd run through the neighborhood. And I guess if he saw something that was interesting to him, he'd throw it in the back of his pickup truck and he'd bring it home. And, 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 and I'm telling you, Bill had, had so much stuff in, that he brought home that he had a two-car garage that he couldn't even put a car in it. He had just a walkway that you get through the stuff into the house. Uh, there was a ladder that went upstairs to a, a storage area above his garage, and it was filled with stuff. He built two outbuildings, and it was filled with stuff, and his yard was filled with stuff. So it's just like stuff was everywhere. And I'd say to Bill, Bill, you know, I want, I, want to, I want to invite you to church. No, I don't have time for that stuff. I'm not really interested in that stuff. So back in those days, some of the early days, uh, uh, back in the early days in which we were living in that home, uh, our, my office situation wasn't the most conducive for studying at that particular time because of the location of the office and things that were going on. And so I would do all of my study and preparation for messages in my home office. And so we'd take in a bedroom. Our kids were grown and gone. I took a, a, a bedroom, and I made an office there. And so I would study in the morning. And because Bill had these medical issues, you know, he, he, there were times when Bill would fall, and I, I'd see him laying on the ground, so I'd go out and try to help pick him up. And, and, and it wasn't uncommon. Honestly, it would happen maybe a couple times a year that the rescue squad would pull up in front of the house. Bill would have him, having an episode, and they would take Bill and haul him off to the hospital for a few days, and then he'd be home, and everything seemed to be fine. Well, this one particular morning, I was sitting in my office, and I watched as that rescue squad pulled up again. I thought, well, Bill's having an episode. And so I, I waited for a few minutes, and I watched some of the neighbors out, standing outside, you know, watching what was going on there. And um, finally, I decided, well, I'm going to go out and kind of check some things out. And about the time I got out there, I watched as the rescue squad, they were bringing Bill out again out of his garage. But this time, instead of being just on the gurney, they had the white sheet pulled over. And I thought to myself, Bill, you didn't have time, and you really weren't interested in spiritual things. You were interested in a bunch of stuff, just a bunch of junk. Bill's wife, Dottie, about a month after he passed away, she started to clear out the garage, and so she brought in, you know what she brought in? She brought in dumpsters. They bring this big dumpster, put it in the driveway, and they start hauling stuff out. They throw that stuff that was so important to Bill that his life revolved around. They, they threw that into the dumpster and then they'd haul it off and take it to a city dump someplace and discard it. And then uh, that wasn't enough so they had to bring in another one. I think they brought in about three before they finally got everything cleared out. And it just was a situation where this was what his interest was. You know, I, as I, I look around, I, I find that unsafe people have an empty element of their life. Uh, we look around, we see entertainers, we see actors we see musicians we see athletes all that have seemingly notoriety and fame they have the material element they have uh, wealth they they have notoriety yet they're they have their accomplishments and yet with all of that they find their lives so empty you say how do you know that because I see their, their lives fall apart and I see so many of them take their lives prematurely and it just says to me they're they're looking for something and they're not finding in what they're looking for they seem to be lacking unhappy Unfortunately, people who are saved too often catch, catch the idea that they're, uh, that they're here in this world for their own purposes. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes, we find a man by the name of Solomon. And Solomon, of course, was a wise man that God had given an unusual element of wisdom. And God loved Solomon. But as Solomon got a little bit older in his life, he violated God's Principles and truths and uh, and married, the Bible says, multiplied to himself many women, many strange women. And the word strange there doesn't mean that they were weird. It means that they were foreign born and, and they brought within their gods and he built temples for their gods. And, and as a result of that, Solomon's heart was turned away from God and Solomon began to chase things in this world. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, a fascinating book. Chapter 2 in particular, he catalogs all the things that he had in his life And here's his summation of it. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Everything under the sun. That phrase under the sun is found several times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it means living your life strictly from a human vantage point. Excluding God out of the equation. My brothers and sisters in Christ, you mark it down. You leave God out of the equation. You'll be chasing the wrong things too. And you'll find that it's vain. Here in our text, we find just the opposite of Solomon. We find the Apostle Paul, who has seemingly had nothing by way of the world's goods. Uh, Yet, you know, the world says, hey, there are certain things you have to have to be happy that I have to be happy. And and, and let's face it, there's nothing wrong with material things. So so please don't misunderstand me. If God blesses you and you live in a nice house, that's that's a wonderful blessing. If you get to drive a nice automobile, that's a wonderful blessing. If you get to wear nice clothes and eat good meals, that's a wonderful blessing. Nothing wrong with any of it. The only thing that becomes wrong with it is when we begin to worship it. Amen. And Solomon, Solomon had all of that stuff and, and and he began to worship it and he found that it was empty. But here we have the Apostle Paul who had nothing that the world says he needs to be happy. He had no physical wealth or possessions. He's known, but he's not really even known. He's really infamous in the world and and his body has paid a price for his service to the eternal king. He says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe it, it's a reference to the fact that Physically, he, he was beaten and, and he bore in his body this, the, the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this particular text, he's writing to a young preacher by the name of Timothy. And I truly believe that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy some very great truths about making our life and make, using it to make a difference. I don't know about you, but you know when it's all said and done, I want to I want to I leave this world a better place than when I came into it. I, I want to know that my life is counted for something. I, I want to know that, hey, there have been people that have been marked by uh, the influence, not because of me, but because of Jesus through me. And, and I find in this text, there are four truths, there are four principles, specifically in verse number 12, that if your life is going to make a difference in this world, you have to understand. Would you notice, first of all, uh, in, in order to use your life correctly, we must, number one, live for a cause. We must live for a cause. Verse number 12 says, for the which cause I also suffer these things. The apostle Paul says, hey, you know, you want to know why I'm going through some things. There's a cause for which I'm, I'm going through the, these, the, the, the issues of my life. You know, we, we, we live in a world where everybody has, seemingly has a cause. And most of the causes that people are living for in the world are not worth living for. I don't know about you, but I was very appalled here this, this, earlier this year when the Supreme Court came up and said, you know this Roe versus Wade thing? Yeah, it's not found in the Constitution, and that was bad law, so we therefore going to toss that out. And when those justices did that, you know, all these people that have the cause of one, think about this, their cause is murdering babies. That's what they're living for. They're, they're going to they're gonna make other people's lives miserable because they want to take the life of, a, of an infant. How sick can you be? And it's because of sin. It's because of ungodliness. But that's their cause. But I'm here to tell you that one of the great uh, things that happens in a person's life when we get saved is God gives us a purpose for living. Notice what Paul says in verse number 11. He talks about this cause. He says, whereunto I am appointed a preacher. That word appointed means that God made a choice. It's, It's the idea of a definitive action to do something on purpose, a premeditated thought. Now, you know that the missionaries that are here this week and that I'm here this week, we didn't just all show up here on Thursday And say, you know, um, we think we're going to go to Martinsburg, uh, West Virginia, to uh, Shenandoah. I think we'll have a missions conference this week. No, no, it was planned. There was a a plan put in place. and, And there was an appointment made. I was contacted about two years ago and asked to put this particular week and these particular days on my calendar. I had an appointment to be here. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. In Webster's 1828 dictionary, he defines the word cause this way. The reason... Or motive that urges or moves or impels the mind to decide or act. A cause speaks of the purpose or motivation for what a person does. When you ask someone, why did you do that? They'll say, because. In other words, when your son or daughter gets in trouble or when you go to do something, I'm doing this because. There's a cause behind it. When God saves or redeems us, he gives us many blessings and benefits. But one of the great blessings is to realize that our lives have a purpose. Not just a purpose for a moment, but an eternal purpose. God allows us to touch this world for eternity. Salvation by its very nature helps us to understand that our lives aren't just lived for this moment and this life. We're saved, and now we have an eternal life, and we're living on this planet, and it's not by accident. God says there's something that I want to accomplish in and through your life. You don't listen, you don't have to be a pastor, you don't have to be called to preach. you don't have to be a missionary to have a cause to live for. That's right. Right. The cause or the purpose involves, uh, for all of our lives think about this involves glorifying and making God known. God has a purpose and a plan for all of our lives, and He doesn't save us so that we might serve our purpose. He saves us so we may find His purpose. Find it encouraging to know that the God of heaven looked down and said, Hey, there's a little boy by the name of Kevin Folger and I'm going to save his soul. And, and I'm glad that he knew that I was going to respond to that and he saved me. But then he said, Okay, I'm going to do something with his life. I've got to tell you, had you known me as a, a child growing up, you probably, I'd probably be the last person you ever think would pastor a church or stand before people and, and preach. Because, uh, you know, when I was a kid growing up, they didn't really label kids. They didn't say, well, you know, that that child is hyperactive uh, or that child has ADHD. They just said, hey, son, straighten up. And my dad said that more than once. And my dad would take me to the bedroom and and, and, and he didn't drug me, he beat me. Now I'm just, I mean, <laughs> he spanked me. He got me straightened out. And, and, and so I'm just simply saying, I, I was hyperactive. I have a hard time focusing. Uh, my mind moves at 100 miles an hour. Sometimes my mind, uh, um, my, my lips move faster than my mind moves. I, I don't know, It just sometimes it just doesn't always come out the way that I think. And, and, and I, I just struggle sometimes with those type of issues. And I went through Bible college and went through all the the, the, the training that was involved in, in ministry. And, and, and then the pastor asked me to come back. To my home church and serve on the staff, and, and you know, fairly early they, they said they decided they were going to ordain me. I don't know why they did that, but they ordained me very early in, in my ministry. I was like only 22 years old, the pastor called for my ordination, and so I went through that. And then he said, right after they ordained me, after we passed all that, that test of you know the doctrine and knowing our doctrine and things like that, he said, Okay, next Sunday night you're preaching. and I said, Okay. Well, you know, I, as I said, I've been through Bible college, been through all the, all the training, you know, the homiletics and the practice preaching and, and how to put the message together, how to deliver the message. And, and I have to tell you, I passed those classes, but it wasn't like I was the shining star. So I, I come home, I'm, I'm standing before this fairly significant congregation on a Sunday night, and i have never preached in our home pulpit before, so this is my first opportunity. So I studied, I studied, I studied. I'm preaching from John 14, a very familiar text, you know. Jesus talking about heaven and preparing a place for us. And, and so I thought, man, this is a great text. And, and, I, and I really, I thought, man, I'm going I'm to wax eloquent on it. I got to tell you, it was the biggest train wreck of a sermon you've ever heard in your life. The train came off the rails about five minutes into it. And about seven minutes, I was done. That was probably the shortest sermon that was ever preached to the pulpit of the Cleveland Baptist Church. I was so ashamed of myself. I walked out of there thinking, I don't know how on earth I'm ever going to do this, if this is what God's called me to do, how on earth am I ever going to do this? I'll tell you how bad it was. My sister came to work for us, and my sister taught English for us in our English department. And this was several years after, and I'm now pastoring the church and you know, preaching every Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And I, I would suppose most of my sermons aren't so much of a train wreck anymore. They're not necessarily great, but they're not a train wreck like that one was. But, but anyway, she, uh, she, uh, she would take that. This this was a long time ago. They had cassette tapes. They recorded things on cassette tapes. So she would have an English class, a speech class, and they would start the speech class. And she'd bring them in there. She said, I know many of you don't think you'll ever be able to speak properly. And you you may struggle with speech. She said, I I just want you to listen to something. She took that train wreck of a sermon and put it in the cassette player and pushed the button. Those kids' eyes got about as big as saucers. And she said, do you know who that is? And, of course, my voice was much higher, and as I said, it was such a mess. Nobody would have ever known at the, that point that that was me. And she said, that's now your pastor. And here's what she'd say. She said, now, if he can learn to speak, so can you. Now, I'm just telling you, I'm so glad that there's a, there's a God in heaven who looks down and says, hey, I can take people who are train wrecks, who, have, who struggle who seemingly don't think that they can do much for God, but God can take their lives as, he, as we yield them to Him, and as, as we follow His direction, and God can do something of significance through us. And so we need to understand that. I find it encouraging to know that God has a purpose for my life. It isn't tricky to discover. Did you know that? You don't have to have a theological degree to figure out what God's plan is for your life. You just need to be obedient. We just need to get up every day and do what we know God wants us to do today. And I'm telling you that you do that one day after another after another. You're going to live your life and you're going to be in the will of God and the plan of God for your life. And you're going to know that you're doing what God wants you to do. When Jesus commissioned his church in Matthew 18, or chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's part of God's purpose for all churches. Hey, Hey, look, the church isn't this building. You know that. The church is the people. We are the church. And when God says the church, he's saying to all of us that we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And as your pastor says, you're either going to go or you're going to give. And in some respects, you're going to do both. See, we we can't buy ourselves out of this obligation to be involved in the Great Commission. It's not like, well, instead of going, I'll give $1,000. No, no. You can't buy yourself out of that obligation. We still have to go. You can go locally. Every one of us needs to leave here with tracks in our, in, our, in our pocketbooks. If you're a lady or in your shirt pocket, if you're a man, saying, hey, this week I'm going to look for somebody that I can witness to. That's God's purpose for your life. That's His plan, and we need to understand that. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 19 to 20, to wit that God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, though God did beseech you by us, be reconciled to God. That is our purpose. The world doesn't have to know your name. Did you know that? To do something great for God and good for God? Some Christians think they need to be called to do witnessing and all those type of things. I'm just simply saying we just need to be obedient. So there's a cause that we have to understand. If your life's going to be be of significance, if you're going to accomplish something and you're going to fulfill God's plan and purpose, you've got to know, number one, the cause. You need to understand that there's a purpose for your living tonight. And it's not about you, but it's about Jesus Christ. Would you notice, secondly, in this text, not only do we find a cause, but would you notice with the cause comes a cost? He says in verse number 12, For the which cause I also suffer these things. There's a cost to this cause. The apostle Paul paid a great price to serve the Lord to fulfill his cause. I mentioned a, a moment ago Galatians six seventeen. for I bear my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And he catalogs those sufferings to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This man suffered and willingly paid a price for the gospel's sake and never bemoaned the fact that there were times when he was beaten. I, 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 I'm thinking about Acts chapter 14 where he's at Iconia in Lystra. Do you remember that story? He had gone there and, and preached the gospel. And, and as a result of preaching the gospel, uh, or actually healed a man, and, and as a result of that, they thought that the gods had come down. And the, and, and the priest of Jupiter was willing to offer sacrifice and Paul and uh, Barnabas understood what they were about to do and, uh, 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 and as a result of that they, they said don't, don't, don't do that and, and I think it was a little bit embarrassing and it wasn't long for, before Jews showed up in that city and they riled up the crowd and they stoned Paul literally picked up those big rocks and hurled them at the apostle Paul and in the Bible, I don't know about you, but I happen to believe that when Paul says, you know, I, I knew a man, whether in the body or out of body, I don't, don't know, one caught up to the third heaven. I almost believe that Paul perhaps died that moment. That he had this out-of-body experience, went to heaven and saw it, but God said, I'm not done with you yet, Paul. And the Bible then tells us that how be it, Paul got up, he rose up. And I love the fact that when Paul got up, He didn't say, well, you know, this is just too hard. I I think I'll just call it quits. I I think I'm going to go back to Antioch. No, no. The Bible is very specific that he and Barnabas went on. And they preached the gospel in other cities. And they came back. And he had a second missionary journey. And a third missionary journey. And here's a man who was willing to pay the price for the cause. There's a cost for that cause. In our text, Paul, to think about this, is close to the end. His history tells us that Paul dies a martyr's death at the hands of Nero. Can I tell you that every cause, every purpose that a person lives for is going to have a cost that's involved in it? You and I are setting tonight in a free country. And you know why we set in a free country? Number one, because there's a God in heaven who wants us to be free. But number two, because there were men and women through the years who were willing to enlist in our military and go fight battles overseas. Because the cause was worth the cost. And we didn't understand that the cause at which we're talking about tonight is greater even than our freedom. The cause of getting the gospel out is the most important cause in all the world and there's a cost involved with that. This week, our this church has been asked to dig into your pocketbooks and it's not easy in in the economy in this time in which we're living to wonder how it's all going to work and how are we going to pay our bills and how can we give more and how can we send more missionaries because it's so expensive in what we're doing. And I'm here to tell you, you can trust the God of heaven in this cause, but it will have a cost involved in it. You have to understand that tonight. We have several missionaries, families out of our church. And I think about the missionaries that leave our country, leave our shores, leave their families behind. There's a cost involved in that, isn't it? I don't, I don't, I, folks, listen, I, I, I'm not, a, a, quote, the typical missionary. My life's a little different than it's been for the last 40-some years. And for 41 years, I was in one place and went to pretty much one church. I preach out some, but for the most part, it was, you know, one place, one people. But now my, my life's a little different, but I'm not like these folks. I, I'm not leaving America. I'm not going to uh, Hong Kong. I'm not going to Cambodia. I'm not going over to Thailand to live, uh, to, to minister. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not looking at Taiwan. I'm just simply saying, uh, but, it, you know, it's not right that we ask these folks to, hey, to say, okay, we're going to follow God and we'll be willing to pay the cost. And we sit here and do nothing. We have these several families out of our church. We have two families in Africa. The Robert Mickey and his family had been in Kenya for almost 25 years. I, was, I had just become the pastor when, the, when we sent them out of our church. Robert served as our bus director and, and grew up in our church. And he got called to missions by reading a, a book about uh, uh, Livingston in, in, in Africa. And uh, as a result of that, you know, he, he said, God's called me to, to Kenya as just a little boy. And went and prepared his life and came and served on our staff for a while. Then we sent him to Africa and he and his wife, Wendy, have been there over 25 years, and they, they, God gave them five children. And three of them are married, and they currently have four grandchildren, and all those grandchildren live here in America. So that means that when they get on an airplane and go over to Kenya, they're separated from those little grandbabies, you know. They're at that young age when you, know, when you want to put your arms around them and kiss them. You want to be there for the birthdays and the special times, but that's not going to happen. I know it's a little bit easier. You know, there's such a thing called FaceTime, but it's not the same as physically being present, is it? We have another family, the Mack family, been in the Ivory Coast of Africa almost about the same amount of time. Bob and Becky have four children. Their oldest son, Bobby, is getting ready to go back and be a part of the mission field with, their, with him, his wife. And Luke is a student preparing for ministry, he wants to go back and work in the Ivory Coast. And they have a daughter, Marilyn. She's married and lives here in the United States. But they have a Down syndrome little girl by the name of Morgan. Morgan's 21 years of age. And they're living on the mission field, dealing with that difficulty. I remember when Bob called me, Bob's wife, um, Becky. And some of you may remember the, the Marshall family. used to sing, travel. Some of you may remember that family. The, the, Becky's a Marshall. She, she was part of that singing family. And they went to the mission field. And when they got to the mission field, she was, she got Pregnant with Luke, and and she delivered. Think about this: she she delivered Luke on the floor of their dining room in the middle of a coup. Bob Bob had every intention of getting her to the hospital, but just about the time she went into labor, that baby was coming, and there were cannons being fired and, and shots being fired. And they told him it wasn't safe to travel, so he had to get a medical book out. And get on the phone with someone and ask to kind of walk him through it. He delivered his own son on the floor there. Uh, and I'm just simply saying, this is some of the things that our missionaries deal with. There's a cost to the cause. It's not an easy life, but, but it's a great life when you're in the center of God's will. And we need to understand some of these issues. And Jesus spoke of being the cost of being a disciple in Luke 14. He said, no man can be a disciple unless they love the Lord first. Unless we sit down and call, count the cost. If we're going to impact the world for Christ, it's going to take some people willing to pay a cost because the cause is vitally worth it. Would you see a third thing in this text? Not only is there a cause, and with that cause comes a cost, but the reason you're willing to pay the cost is because there's a conviction. Notice what he says. He says in verse number 12, for with which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. That's a conviction. For I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's a conviction. We must live by conviction. Paul believes some things about the one he served. Paul uses words of conviction here. His confidence in the one he served was evident throughout Paul's life and ministry. Think, think about how this works. There's a conviction, which means I'm willing to pay the cost because I believe in the cost. That's really what it comes down to. Those things all go together. No one will pay a cost for a cause they don't believe in. The ones willing to stand up and be counted are convicted of the cause. Think think about this. Conviction motivates an excellent service. One will never attempt to do anything, give anything, or sacrifice anything until one realizes the Lord is worthy. You know, we oftentimes think of, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with our missionaries showing these videos. I, you know, Every missionary I know, and myself included, we all have a video that we show that speaks of the cause, speaks of what we're trying to accomplish. And sometimes we, we show these pictures, you know, we see things. And, and, and it's true, our eyes do affect our hearts. When we see little children and we see people and, and we see the squalid and we see the needs, there's no question that it moves us. But I don't know that anybody's going to stay in a mission field very long just based on what they see. You've got to be convinced. You have to to understand that, hey, whatever the cost may be, the one that I'm serving, he's worthy of that kind of cost. Our Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of everything. He gave everything for us. Why isn't he worthy of us giving everything to him? You may be familiar with the story of William Borden. William Borden was born into the dairy family that owned the Borden Dairies and. He was going to be worth a fortune. However, at a young age, just as a young boy, he he felt God saved him and felt the call to world missions. And and as a result of that, uh, as he graduated from high school, one of his graduation presents, because the family was so wealthy, they gave him a trip around the world. And that trip around the world just cemented the fact that he was going to be a missionary. As he was going to go to China, his uh, idea was to go to China, and he went to seminary in the early 1900s. Think about this: he was so wealthy. Even in, in college, in the early 1900s, he gave away $70,000 worth of wealth, which would be the equivalent of probably about 10 times that amount today in, in, in today's funds. But here was a young man who said, you know, I, don't want, I want to cling to stuff. I'm going to give it away so that it's not a, a hindrance to me. So he, his idea was to go to China to reach the 15 million Muslims that were living there at that time. And on his way to China, he stopped by Egypt and as a result of that, he was going to uh, learn how to witness. There was a man living in Egypt that knew specifically how you could best reach the, the, the Muslims. And so he's going to spend some time there. And while he was there, he contracted cerebral meningitis and died on April the 9th, 1913. And he was buried. And, and as a result of that, he never, he never made it to the mission field, but he died on his way to the mission field. And they buried some of, uh, you know, they buried him there, and they sent back some of his effects. And in One of the things they sent back was his Bible, and you may be familiar with this story, but it's interesting to me that in the side of the Bible, there were three dates that were were listed in his Bible, and the first date was the day he surrendered to God's plan to be a missionary, and as a result of that, some of his family members, they, they weren't really happy about that. They looked at this young man, they thought, man, there's great potential, he could grow up, he could run the business. And now he's going to give his way, uh, life away to missions. And it just seems like such a waste to us. And, and, and so they made his life a little bit difficult. However, he wrote that first date of his surrender. And he wrote two words after the date. The words, no reserve. I'm not, I'm not going to hang on to anything. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. The second date was after his college graduation when he was offered several high-paying positions, flattering positions in the family business. And that date in which he graduated... Two words, again, no retreat. The final date was two days before he died. He knew he was sick and he knew he was dying. Two days before he died, he wrote the last two words. No regret. I think to myself how many people live their entire life when they... And I, I'll tell you, when I was pastoring in Cleveland, I don't know how many funerals I conducted and many of them were for our church members, but a lot of times we'd be contacted by our funeral homes when people didn't have a pastor and they would ask us to come and conduct funerals, and either I and my staff would do that. And I can't tell you how many of those funerals of lost people, people talking about how regretful life had been, and they wish they had done this, and they wish they had done that, and it just seemed like they would accomplished nothing, and there was all this regret. How about a young man that's at the end of his life, doesn't even reach the, un- to the mission field, and he still is willing to write down two words, I, don't, I'm not, I haven't lived my life with regret. Someone wrote this about this man. William Borden did not die a tragic death. He lived a life that God gave to him with conviction. While he did not live a long life, he lived a full life that still impacts hundreds of people years later. So we're still being impacted by his life because of his willingness to live for Jesus. Would you notice the last thing that we find here? So we have a We have a cause in which we're to live for. There's a cost with that cause. And as a result of that that cost, the reason we're willing to pay that because there's a conviction. But would you notice the the final thing that Paul talks about in verse number 12? He says, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. So there's the cause. There's a, a cost. I suffer these things. And here's the conviction. I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him Against that day, Paul said, here's my final thought. I'm living a life that's worth living because I'm living for a crown. I'm living for a crown. You say, how do you know that? Well, look if you would. I don't even have to turn the page in my Bible, but look if you you would, chapter 4, verse number 7 and 8. Paul understood it wasn't just for about this moment. Look what he said. He said in chapter 4, verse 7, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord... The righteous judge shall give me, here's that phrase, at that day, and not to me only, but also to all them, also love is appearing. Folks, it's not just about this moment. There's a day coming. I I don't know about you, but I'm very glad that when I got saved, I don't have to worry about standing before God and wondering if I'm going to get in heaven or not. Have I done enough good? It's not, it's not like I have to worry about my, those sins, you know, being covered. That's been covered. Hey, when I got saved, my, 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 my past sins were covered, my present sins were covered, and my future sins were covered. I'm in. I'm not worrying about the judgment of my sin. Jesus took that judgment for me on the cross of Calvary. But the Bible is also clear that every one of us who are saved will give account of himself before the Lord. We will stand before the Lord and give an account of our life and what we've done for Christ. And so Paul said, I'm looking at that day. He said, I've committed these things to him against that day. And I'm looking forward to the day in which I'm going to receive a crown. But not only me, but all those also that love his appearing. You know, when you're looking for his appearing, that means it's a motivation. My dad, I mentioned the other day, my dad drove a truck. And so during the school year, of course, I didn't see my dad much because he'd leave in the morning. And sometimes I'd already be in bed by the time he got back. But in the summer times, you know, it was, it was later so my dad would oftentimes, he'd get, leave in the morning, go, go out and get his truck, and then he'd come back, and it was, you know, seven or eight o'clock at night, and, and I, I was always, my, my, my dad would say to my mom, he said, now, Nancy, you tell Kevin that he needs to get the yard mowed. Uh, before I get home tonight, I want that yard mowed. And I would think to myself, well, okay, I'll get to it. And I'd go out and get busy, you know, and we'd be playing around in the neighborhood with all the kids in the neighborhood, and we'd be doing things, and you know, we get caught up in a baseball game or whatever. And, and I, I didn't think too much about it until all of a sudden I saw my dad's truck coming. Not, not his semi, but he had a pickup truck that he drove to work. And I, you know, when my dad was coming home and I hadn't done what I was supposed to do, I wasn't looking forward to him showing up. But I still remember the days in which I did do that early. I got to it. I said, okay, so, there's a lawn to mow. I'll get to it. I'll get it done early, and then I can go have my fun. And then when, I, when my dad was coming, I was looking forward to him coming around the corner. I still remember my dad he used to carry one of those old metal lunch lunchboxes. Some of you remember those metal lunch boxes And my mom would pack him a lunch, and, and, and if he had a leftover, you know, maybe a Twinkie or something, I'd jump on the side of that truck, and he said, here you go, son. I, looked, I loved looking forward to that little treat that may be in that lunchbox. But I wasn't looking forward to it when I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And I'm here to tell you that, hey, if we're looking for His appearing, that means we're, we're doing what He wants us to do. We know He's soon to come. We've got to get about it. Amen. We're encouraged by the same Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 when he kind of concludes that one of the great, greatest chapters in the Bible on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and us as, as believers, but he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know, if this life is it, in other words, if this is all there is, don't bother. But we all know there's a day coming, don't we? We know that we're going to stand before the Lord, that this life is just a small segment of eternity. I, uh, I was inspired, and I want to share this, this little story with you before I, I conclude tonight, because I, I think it so contrasts the life of my neighbor Bill that I told you about in the beginning. And I want you to listen to this story about this man. It was told by a, a preacher by the name of Francis Dixon, who was a preacher in Australia, and he said, I was a widely-traveled pastor... Well, he was actually an ink from England. He said, I was a widely travel pastor in England from Lansdowne Baptist Church. And one night in church, I asked a man named Peter to share his testimony. Peter got up and said, this is how I was saved. I was in the Royal Navy, and I was walking down George Street in Sydney, Australia. And out of nowhere stepped a little old gray-haired man, and he said to me, Excuse me, sir, but could I ask you a question? I hope I won't offend you. But if you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? The Bible says it'll either be in heaven or in hell. Would you think about that, please? Thank you. God bless you. And totally do. <laughs> he said that and the man left, and he said, I'd never be confronted with that question. I couldn't get it out of my mind. I got back to the London and sought out a pastor and became a Christian. Several weeks later, the story goes on that he said we were in a revival in a church. In and Noel, and uh, Noel, one of the visiting revival teams shared his testimony. He said, this is how I came to know Christ. I was in the Royal Navy walking down George Street in Sydney, Australia, and a little old gray-haired man stepped out of nowhere, and he said to me, excuse me, sir, but can I ask you a question? If you were to die today, do you know where you'd spend eternity? What he said bothered me, and, and later I sought out a Christian, and I was converted to Christ. He went on to say, several months later, I was in the Sydney of Aldean in eastern Australia, and I thought I would share Peter and Noel's testimony. And a man of the congregation jumped up, waving his hands and said, Well, I'm another. The same thing happened to me. I couldn't get out of my mind. what the, had, And I became a follower of Jesus. Then I went to Australia, uh, Western Australia for a revival meeting and shared the story. And afterward, a deacon of the church came and said, Mr. Dixon, I'm another. I'd never been asked that question. And I later prayed to receive Christ. He said, I'll read... Returned home to my church in England and shared about Peter and Noel, the man and Dean and the deacon from the western part of Australia. When I finished, a young lady came up to me and said, Pastor Dixon, I'm another. And this, uh, this man said the same thing to me and I later became a believer. Several weeks later, I was attending a conference in northern England, and I shared this growing story. And afterward, a man came up to me and said, Dr. Dixon, well, I'm another. I was on a business trip to Sydney, and this obnoxious little spiteful man stepped out of a shop, of door, uh, out of a shop doorway and offered me a religious pamphlet and accosted me with a question. Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you would die tonight, would you go to heaven? I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder, and he wouldn't listen to me. I came home and told my pastor thinking he would sympathize, but he agreed and said he was disturbed for years knowing that I didn't have a relationship with Jesus and that he was right and I made Jesus my Lord and Savior. A year later, I went on a world speaking tour and one of the stops was in India. I was in a missionary conference and spoke on a personal evangelism and I thought to myself, what a perfect illustration. And I went through the story and afterward a missionary came up to me and said, Dr. Dixon, I'm another. It happened to me the same way and I trusted Christ after." And after India, I went to Jamaica, and in a meeting with a group of pastors, I shared the story of a, with them, and a pastor came up and said, excuse me, Dr. Dixon, I'm another. The same thing happened to me. And later, I was converted and went to seminary. Then I stopped in Atlanta, Georgia, to speak at a naval chaplain's conference, here for three days, and I talked to over 1,000 chaplains. After the chaplain, afterwards, the chaplain general took me out for a meal, and asked the cha, I asked the chaplain how I became a Christian, and he shared that he was a reparate drunk in his days of service. And while doing exercise in the South Pacific, they stopped in Sydney Harbor. said, so I got off the bus on George Street and a blind drunk and a ghost of a man jumped out in front of me and pushed a pamphlet in my hand and said, Sailor, are you saved? If you die tonight, would you go to heaven? And the fear of God hit me immediately. I was shocked, sober, ran back to the ship and sought out a chaplain. And he led me to Christ. Dr. Dixon said, need I tell you where I went next? I went to Sydney, Australia. And I saw a little Christian friend and who told, and told him the stories, and they asked him if he knew the gray-haired man on George Street. Oh, yes, everybody knows him. That's Mr. Frank Jenner. But he's a very old now and is confined to his bed in the hospital. I asked my friend to take me to Mr. Jenner, and he went to the hospital, and I introduced myself, and I gave specifics of each story, and Mr. Jenner began to weep. And he wept, and he cried, and I said, What's wrong? And Mr. Jenner said, when I came to Christ, I promised him I would share Jesus as simple witness to at least 10 people daily. George Street was the best place to do this in my retirement years. And I got many rejections, but many people courteously took my track. In over, listen, in over 40 years of doing this, sir, I have never heard of one person coming to Jesus until today. Mr. Jenner died two weeks later. Now I ask you something. What your life tonight? Are you like my neighbor gathering a bunch of junk in this world? That when you die, they're just going to toss it in the rubbish heap of life? Or are you like Mr. Jenner? You're out after souls. Trying to reach people with the most blessed message that they can ever hear. I'm telling you, in this community where you live. In the surrounding areas, are people dying and going to hell tonight? And God puts us in their path. And we are to be the witness. We are to be the ones telling them. I mean, I'm here to tell you, you won't do that unless you understand the cause. And, you're, and there's going to be a cost with it. Believe me, you're going you're to you're pay a cost for that. Just like these missionaries pay a cost for what they're doing. And you'll do it, though, if you believe in the conviction. And understanding that someday there's a crown that awaits us. I don't know about you, but I want my white life to count for something. And I can only do that if I understand Paul's principles that are given to us in verse 12. Would you bow your heads together with me in prayer tonight? Thank you for listening. Every person in this room tonight, your life is about something. There's some, something you're living for, something that's motivating you, something that's driving you. The cause of reaching the world with the gospel is the motivation. The young people sitting here, you're told by the world to live for yourself, to live for the stuff of this world, to go for the, the things that the world has to offer. And I'm here to tell you that it'll, it'll never satisfy you. Just recently, and I thought it was so sad. Perhaps one of the greatest football players of all time, Tom Brady. Think about this. Gave up his family for football. What a sad story. He and his wife are divorced or facing divorce because of football. Stupid sport. Man living for a sport. Can't doesn't know when to, to quit. And he's willing to sacrifice his family for a little bit of notoriety, a little bit more fame, a little bit more, perhaps a few more goals. And I'm here to tell you, as Christian people, we sometimes can get caught up in the same stuff. We've got to understand there's a bigger, bigger cause. And Paul said, hey, I, I've been appointed a preacher. But you've been appointed a, a preacher too. We're all to be preachers of the gospel. And I ask you, when was the last time you witnessed to someone? When was the last time you gave out a gospel track? When was the last time you really got burdened for a soul? Do we, I mean, we're, we're, we're concerned about missions this week, but are we really? Does it really mean something to us? Do, do, do we really think that the, the lost are perishing tonight and Cambodia, in Thailand, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, in the 1040 window, across the face of the world, here in Martinsburg. If we really believe that, it'll affect the way we live tomorrow. and Maybe some of even some of the things we do tonight. Would you stand together with me for prayer tonight? Father, help us, we pray. Lord, so many times I'm ashamed of my own self and my lack of witness. God, we ask that you would forgive us of our failures. Lord, I do pray tonight that you'd help us to determine that we're going to live for the cause. That we'd understand that there's a purpose for our life. More than just the stuff of this world that gets tossed the garbage bins of life. Lord, may we live for the day in which we receive the crown. We pray it in Christ's name. Our heads are bowed. God has spoken your heart tonight.